Welcome to the Beastified Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. This is a show dedicated to inspiring you to treat your body and mind the way it should be treated. Each week, we delve deep into all things health with some of the brightest and most forward-thinking, out-of-the-box minds in health, fitness, nutrition, and spirituality. Deep and often intense, these conversations are released every Wednesday and are designed to inspire, educate, motivate, and encourage you to discover, uncover, and unlock and unleash your potential. In this episode of the Beastified Podcast, Light Watkins joins us for a mindful and powerful conversation on the inner gym and how to train your consciousness and how you can apply the concepts to your life. First, let's get the obvious out of the way. Light Watkins is pretty much the coolest name ever, right? Light has been operating in the meditation space for over 15 years. He travels the world teaching everyone from bankers, artists and politicians to CEOs and comedians how to meditate in a self-sufficient way. He's personally taught meditation close to 2,000 people. Light is also the author of the Inner Gym book series, a regular contributor to Mind Body Green, a TEDx speaker, and founder of the Shine Movement. Prepare to be inspired to incorporate some of these practices into your own life. So, first off, Light, we'd just like to say welcome to the Beastified podcast, and we're very grateful that you joining us today. And we're really looking forward to this very mindful episode. Me too, absolutely. So a good way to start this would be to dig into the moment when you thought, yes, meditation is the key, and for you to tell us about your journey in exploring the ancient and spiritual practice of meditation. Yes, um, I was a meditation dabbler for many years when I was living in uh, New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a fashion model at the time, and I had gotten into yoga. And, you know, through yoga, of course, there are many references to meditation. So I wasn't really sure what that meant. And uh, but I was curious. And so I would just try a bunch of things. And and uh, the I, I never really felt like I was able to get into that samadhi state that people had always talked about. And I wasn't convinced that anyone else was able to get there either because, you know, I figured, hey, I'm a smart person and I follow instructions well. And, you know, is it me or is it just that this thing is not really all that effective? Maybe this was effective 5,000 years ago, but, but you know, maybe it's not effective anymore. So I kind of had this quiet frustration around meditation for a long time. And when I retired myself from modeling and moved to um, Los Angeles, when I was 29 years old, I met a person who introduced me, who sort of reintroduced me to meditation. But this time it was, it was he presented it. He presented meditation as a householder practice as opposed to a monastic practice, mm-hmm. and that's where I had the the light bulb moment that I had been practicing it wrong the entire time. I was trying to do it like a monk, and that's why I was having such difficult experiences with it. And once I started practicing uh, Vedic meditation, which is a householder style of meditating, uh, instantly it felt easier, it felt more natural, it felt simple, and I was finally able to reach those deeper states of, uh, of my inner consciousness that I had, I had fantasized about, and it came as naturally as, as, uh, as dreaming. And so it was like, just for me, in my little circle of influence it was it was the best thing since sliced bread as they say here in america and uh and i just i couldn't shut up about it and i told all my friends i told if i was going to date a new girl she had to go and learn how to meditate that was sort of one of my filters (laughs) and uh and if she took to it then i knew it was going to work out and if she didn't then it probably wasn't going to work out and so all my friends and i were meditating and 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 continuing to live our regular, you know, householder lives, meaning we very much were uh, involved in relationships and recreational activities, same as everybody else. We just happened to be doing this little meditation thing in the background. Life, could you please give us a, a primer on Vedic meditation, please? Uh, so Vedic meditation is, as I said, it's a householder practice. And what that means is, you know, what, when most people 
think about meditation, and I only know this because I've been teaching meditation for uh, close to a decade, and usually when I mention the fact that I'm a meditation teacher, that some of the comments that people will say is, oh, meditation is too difficult, meditation is too challenging, I can't stop my mind from thinking. And it kind of gave me the idea that most people envision meditation as this as this Olympian-like endeavor of uh, trying to battle their thinking mind or wrestle with their antsy body. And, you know, you, you envision yourself sitting on the floor on a cushion with your legs crossed and, and your, your thighs or lower back and writhing pain. And, and, um, and so you, when you come into the door with these kinds of preconceived ideas, you automatically feel that you need to work really hard uh, to meditate. And Vedic meditation is basically the opposite of that paradigm. In, in fact, it's the, it, it flips the paradigm on its head. And it's, it says that instead of, instead of trying to quiet the mind in order to be happy, it's about locating the source of happiness. And as a mm-hmm. byproduct of reaching the source of happiness, which is in our least excited state of awareness, the mind will just naturally fall silent on its own. So the methodology by which we can reach that least excited state is the ancient uh, sound technology known as mantra. So you, you receive a mantra from your teacher, and the mantra is just a word. It doesn't mean anything. And that word, when you experience it in your, in your least excited state of awareness at the beginning of meditation, it has the, it has the uh, capability of, of almost seducing your mind away from all those busy thoughts that we all have. No matter who you are, everybody has a busy mind at the beginning of meditation. And so the mantra seduces the mind away from that surface layer of thinking and into the quieter states of thinking. And it does so without you realizing that it's happening. That's one of the caveats that you can't be aware that it's happening while it's happening any more than you can know that you're falling asleep while you're falling asleep. If you, if you're lying in your bed thinking to yourself, okay, I'm falling asleep now. Now it's, I'm really falling asleep. You're not actually falling asleep. Falling asleep only ever happens when you are least aware of it. And that's how going deep in meditation happens. So, so with Vedic meditation, you go into these deeper states and if you happen to pop back out, you just use your mantra again to go back into it. And therefore the mantra is just a, it's a navigational device and you should only be experiencing it for maybe a minute or two at a time, uh, as opposed to the monastic approach of using a mantra for, uh, in a concentrated way for a long stretch of time, which which has the tendency to keep you more active. I don't know if I'm using too much like meditation jargon there, but that's that's the essential process, and you do it for about 15 or 20 minutes. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, like meditation is often portrayed in the media as a sort of luxury, but I believe it's completely integral. Is meditation absolutely necessary in modern day society? Uh, I've written about this before, and what I've said is that, you know, it's not essential, it's not necessary in the same way that that eating fruits and vegetables is not necessary in order to keep the body going. But if that's your standard just to get by to the next moment, then yeah, you don't need to meditate, you don't need to eat fresh foods, you don't need to exercise. But if you want to thrive, right, if you want to operate at your highest potential, if you want to go beyond the limits of of the mind, then absolutely uh, you would benefit from having a, a daily meditation practice. And the thing, the tricky part about meditation is just like with exercise, it's like you would never know what that potential looks like until you actually start the practice, right? You'll I'm never sure. know what's possible. There's no way anyone can ever describe to you what's possible until you start the practice. And so your idea of what's possible oftentimes is not even close to what's really possible until you start meditating or exercising or eating, eating well and, and that kind of thing. And you know, we see this all the time. People get diagnosed with cancer. People get diagnosed with all kinds of ailments. And they think, okay, this is it. The doctor said it. So that means that my life is going to go in this direction. And you had other people who get diagnosed with these diseases and they decide, okay, I'm going to switch my lifestyle. I'm going to start eating, you know, these types of foods, whether it's raw foods or vegan foods or whatever, these types mm-hmm. of foods with more natural antibodies inside and that can combat these um, imbalances 
in my body because that's really what any disease is. It's an imbalance. And when they do that, the body has been shown to heal itself from all kinds of ailments and, and disease. And the same thing has happened with meditation. There's in the last 40 years, we've seen studies now that have shown that all kinds of different ailments can be reversed on an emotional, on a psychological, even on a physical level, simply from sitting down and meditating twice a day. Because meditation, uh, when practiced properly, is a very powerful stress release uh, mechanism for the body. And when you are able to release more stress than you're able to bring on on a daily basis, uh, it's 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 a natural outcome for the body to just move itself back into balance because that's what it wants to do anyway. So true. Daily meditation will definitely have positive effects on just about every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. For me, me, me sleep felt a lot deeper. What are the lifestyle changes that happen after you started meditating? Can I ask you guys a question? Do you you both do you both meditate? And if so, what kind of meditation have you have you been practicing? I meditate uh, on the morning straight after I wake up. Uh-huh. I just I just feel it gets myself ready for the day. That's I've started. Basically, I just get on the rug on the floor uh-huh. and uh, cross my legs and I just try and focus on my breath yeah. and only yeah. my breathing. It's hard, but I'm I'm getting push- more and more used to it. You're pushing through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, for, for me, when I meditate, I like to go into nature and I feel that that sort of practice of meditation when you're in nature. I uh, feel, feel it works a lot better for me. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sorry. Now, what was the question again? So what are the lifestyle changes that happen after you started meditating? Uh, the major one is you obviously, uh, as you mentioned, you sleep better. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that, that has a ripple effect that, again, can't be imagined until you have the experience. Um, I, the latest statistic is that people in our Western society are so sleep deprived that very few of us knows what it feels like to truly be awake. And so mm-hmm. just having that wakefulness can allow you to see and experience things um, that you may not have realized were there the entire time. And, and uh, you know, so from that, you may start to see a connection between things that you're eating or not eating that could be leading to uh, poor health, so you can correct that, or people who you're surrounding yourself with um, or not surrounding yourself with that could be leading to you doing more amazing things in your life. Um, I would say the biggest one is just, just having the ability to prioritize, to know what's important and what's not important. And uh, when you don't have that ability, you end up wasting a lot of time on people, on things, on situations, on desires that uh, that weren't really all that uh, pivotal or important in in the in your own personal growth and transformation. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Uh, your book, The Inner Gym, is such a powerful concept, um, a concept a lot of people forget about uh, about working inner muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of other exercises like pull-ups, push-ups, and squats do your physical muscles, whereas the inner gym will help to build you and strengthen your happiness. Mm-hmm. Is the inner gym completely about building happiness, or does it reach other areas to explore? Well, we're using happiness as a foundational um, um, benefit, meaning you know, going to the gym can help you cultivate strength and once you have physical strength then you can do just about anything that involves strength right mm-hmm. and and that there's nothing with with gravity and living life on planet earth there's nothing that doesn't involve some some degree of strength from walking to picking up a glass and drinking water to having to uh, overcome uh, very intense hardships, physical obstacles, uh, such mm-hmm. as running away from a tiger or bear or a lion or having to run into a burning house and save somebody. So all of these things uh, require some degree of strength. And so what the inner gym is all about is saying that happiness is sort of like internal strength that can help you to survive a, a an emotional change of expectation or demand or or psychological pressure, and which we all experience. Again, on planet Earth, there's no shortage of, of emotional challenges and hardships. And the problem is that 
people have this mistaken assumption that happiness comes from outside. And, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, as soon as I make enough money, as soon as I meet the right person, my soulmate or whatever, as soon as I get a new job, as soon as I move out of my place, move out of my parents' house, then I'm going to be happy. This is the idea. I'm going to be happy in the future as soon as I accomplish these things. And what we have all seen, no matter where you are on the planet, is that we all know somebody who's accomplished more than we have. And that person is not necessarily going to be happier than we are. In fact, if you travel to a lot of the the poor uh, regions of the world, the third world countries, you'll see kids who don't have anything are oftentimes happier than kids who are in places like America and Europe who have way more material abundance uh, at their disposal. And it, it, it leads to the question of where's happiness, you know, and how are these people able to smile so freely and, and be so present, even though they're living in shacks or they don't have, you know, the wardrobe that we have. And of course, this is not a new problem. This is something that has been researched very extensively for thousands of years in Central Asia. And what they discovered way, way, way back in those old days is that happiness actually is uh, a, a, there's a source of, of, of happiness and that is inside of each one of us. And if we can tap into that, um, then we can rediscover what it felt like to be a child and have that childlike sense of presence and that childlike innocence when we come across new situations. And so, uh, and so inner exercising is a way of, of recultivating that. And I say recultivating it because we all had it at one point. We just lose it when we get older and we get conditioned with the Western constraints of what it means to be fulfilled, you know, which is, perpetuated by advertising and, and movies and and uh, mentors and role models who are well-meaning, but they're all, they've also bought into this idea that you need to achieve certain t- a certain level of success in order to be happy. And all it does is it puts strain on us. It makes us act in ways that are inauthentic. It makes us uh, look at the present moment as an obstacle that needs to be overcome instead of appreciating what we have in the here and the now. And all that stress it gets stored up in the body and it starts to hamper our ability to function uh, physically and emotionally and, and, and psychologically on an optimal level. So the inner gym is a, is a workbook for liberating yourself from the shackling effect of stress and of uh, unhappiness. And it's, and it helps to redirect uh, the reader in, 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 in uh, towards that true happiness that has always been inside of them. And all they have to do is tap into it through practices such as meditation and gratitude and uh, slowing down and really being present in the moment and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the problem I feel is not even for 10 minutes a day, people are willing to stop what they're doing or stop worrying about the stuff that doesn't even matter. Uh-huh. Simple, important, quick pra- practices throughout the day in life will change you as a person mm-hmm. and really improve your health. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I feel that people need to decide, not use excuses. And if it's important to you, you'll find a way. Yep. How does the inner gym fit in with modern day society? So the inner gym, what it's going to, what it, uh, my hope is that what it will do is it will create ambassadors for, for true happiness, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that means, you know, you, you guys, Dan and Chris, me, the people in my circle, the people who who resonate with that message, because not everybody's going to resonate with the message, and I'm aware of that, and that's fine, uh, because that's how real change happens is on a grassroots level. Yeah. So if people resonate with it, the people who do resonate with it and who, who commit to the 30-day challenge, and by the end of that 30 days, if you do everything that's in the book, it's not possible for you not to be radiating more happiness from within, and that's attractive, you know, that happiness that you radiate inside from within, that true happiness, is it's immensely attractive. And people around you are going to want to know what are you doing differently because I know you, right? This is what they think. I know you. You're just like me. And I know that you have the same challenges and the same concerns and the same priorities as me, and generally speaking. And 
because I can sense that something is different about you and you reveal to me, oh, I've been reading this book or I've been trying this program, I'm going to be more inclined to do that because I know you and I see that it's worked for you. And so that's going to be the selling point. Like I'm not, I don't have a marketing strategy for this. I don't have an advertising campaign. I'm just, I'm just hoping that people are going to have the same experience that I had. And that's, that's what led me to meditation ultimately was somebody in my life who was radiating happiness. And he introduced me to a teacher or to a book or to a way of thinking about things. And so every individual that comes across this, that resonates with it, and that follows through with it, they're going to become the marketing or the advertising. And I'm, I'm, I'm taking the long-term approach here, the marathon approach. You know, I don't need to see this thing on the New York Times bestseller in the next uh, uh, 60 days or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just hoping that one day, maybe 50 years from now or 100 years from now, you know, uh, people continue to benefit from it. And, and I feel like the message is timeless enough and simple enough that it can have a very long shelf life and, and be one of those books that, that gets discovered, you know, like you discover it somewhere in a library or in a dental office or something like that. And you pick it up and thumb through it and you think to yourself, okay, well, this is, this is the message I've been looking for. Cause that's what happened with me when I first read conversations with God back when I was 26, I'd seen it around and heard about it, but never quite felt the need for anything related to God or religion, or so I thought. And then I picked it up one day while I was lying around waiting for my girlfriend to get ready uh, to go out. She had it on her bookshelf, and I just started thumbing through it. And that that instant changed my entire changed the course of my entire life. I literally could not put the thing down. I read all four volumes four times. The pages were tethered and tethered and and highlighted and underscored and and uh, and it, it, it was my gateway book to becoming a conscious uh, spiritual seeker. And so I'm hoping that the inner gym becomes that for happiness and, and spirituality and meditation. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. I'm sure that message is going to get delivered. Um, so, Light, on your TED Talk, I heard you mention the great example of the polar bear. Mm-hmm. Could you explain this great concept, please? So the polar bear... Uh, just to give you the backstory here, the polar bear uh, uh, experiment was done by a Harvard psychologist who was out on a, on vacation. I'm sorry, who came across a quote from a Russian philosopher. I can't remember the guy's name who was apparently on vacation, um, and in the in Siberia, and came across a polar bear and thought to himself, or sort of mused to himself. You know, if you try to to not think about a polar bear, you'll end up thinking about the damn thing every five minutes. Uh-huh. So this psychologist took that musing to heart and wanted to see, wanted to actually study it, as scientists do. And so he got a he he got some university students to try to to sit with their eyes closed and and, and first to try to think about the white polar bear for five minutes, and then try to not think about the white polar bear for five minutes. And what he found was was that when they tried to not think about the white polar bear, they of course thought about it more than when they did when they tried to think about it. And this was very revealing uh, as far as how the mind works because it's counterintuitive. You know, we think we have this great ability to focus or this great ability to control the mind, and the truth of the matter is, you don't have any control over almost any of it. And mm-hmm. uh, and and yet, when we sit down and, and try to meditate, the reason why we say try to meditate is because there's this inherent battle with the thinking mind. And the metaphor that I use is is you know as a swimmer, if you go into the into the pool and you try to fight the water, we all know what's going to happen, right? You're going to drown because mm-hmm. that's not how you swim. The proper way to swim is you need to operate in concert with how the water uh, reacts to your body, which means you need to elongate, you need to torque, you need to uh, breathe in a certain way and, and relax. You need to stay relaxed. And so the same thing applies for the meditation. If you can relax into all of the thoughts, then you're going to find that the thoughts uh, 
stop they stop becoming your enemy and they start becoming your friend in meditation. Oftentimes people say things like they can't meditate because they're having all these thoughts. Mm-hmm. Where do thoughts come from and how can someone deal with this? Uh, the thoughts are out in the world like radio and television waves are out in the world. And uh, the mind is the receiver. The mind is the, is the radio receiver. It's the television tuner. And, and, Based on what channel you are tuned into, that is going to determine what quality and frequency of thoughts you have. And so meditation is, the, is, the, is a way of changing the channel. It's not about beating up the radio or, or throwing the television against the wall. It's, mm-hmm. it's a simply a matter of changing the channel, right? But we're too lazy to pick up the remote control to do that. <laughs> nobody, That's so true. nobody wants to get up and change the channel. So that idea of, of stopping all the thoughts is to throw the thing against the wall <laughs> and beat themselves up and that's not necessary <laughs> so a uh, part of my existence on planet earth is to show people how to grab the remote control and it should be that easy sitting down and meditating should be should feel as easy as getting the remote control and changing the channel uh-huh. sometimes when you meditate people wonder whether or not it's working uh, meditation can feel like you're just sitting there going over your to-do list or thinking about the process of meditation itself, which can cause the time to drag on. Uh-huh. But what do deep meditation experiences feel like? Um, again, it's it's kind of challenging to describe what that feels like to someone who's never felt it before. Mm-hmm. But uh, just to string together a few relatable experiences, it kind of feels like, and I think everybody's had this experience, uh, when you're sitting in bed and you're reading a book and it's late at night and you get to that one line in the book and then time goes by and you are still on that same line in the book and then more time goes by and you realize you're still on that same line where it seems like time is just suspended and you can't really keep actively thinking about the thing that you were thinking about before. So it feels very much like you're being sucked into something. You're being pulled into this deeper state of, of non-thinking. And there are gaps in between your thoughts. And, um, except you're still conscious and you're still sitting there, but your eyes are closed. So you're not fully asleep, but you're not thinking either. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very different sort of uh, in-between state. That's, that's what it feels like. For me, it felt when I when I carried out the practice, it felt like like everything was so much more colourful. That's what it felt like for me in my experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's different for you know different qualities at different times. I, I don't think there's just one way to describe it. I think everybody who's had a deep experience will will describe it a little bit differently, based on whatever that was was happening inside of their their body and mind during the meditation. And it's kind of like a dimmer switch too. It's not like a you know, it's not like an off and on switch. That's that's what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Like I feel the most important thing to remember is that all meditations are useful, and each one makes it easy to have more effortless experiences in your next meditation. Yes. Have you ever been in a state of enlightenment through your meditation practice? Well, how do you define enlightenment? A uh, place of pure calm. Uh, yes, I have had moments of pure calmness. And, uh, you know, the, the, the other, the other tricky part to daily meditation is that a lot of times you won't realize that you are actually benefiting from it, unfortunately, until something quote unquote bad happens and, and your reaction to that thing is not what, how, how most people would react, which would maybe, uh, shock or it may be. Uh, you know, getting dramatic or something like that. Your mm-hmm. your reaction is actually very calm, and 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 that's where you start. You really see the benefits of all the all the time you put into your practices because of how calm you are in the face of stark change or heavy demands or pressures. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, again, it's not even you're not you're not sitting there saying to yourself, "Oh my God, I'm so calm right now." You're just being you. Uh-huh. And then it's other people later on who are going to come and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you reacted like, like that. You were so calm. That's so true. That's amazing. 
So what what's the most amazing place you've ever meditated? And what's your opinion on meditating in nature versus somewhere more conventional? My ideal place to meditate is on my couch. Uh, <laughs> and that's just because, you know, I've been... I actually, when I'm in Los Angeles, I'll teach a lot of meditation in my in my house um, because it's very comfortable and I don't really like to go anywhere um, when I'm working. I'd rather have people come to me, and um, and it's yeah. So the the primary uh, element that I like to have when I'm meditating is comfort, right? Mm-hmm. Over over quiet, over darkness. If I'm comfortable then I can meditate almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter how much noise is around or, or how bright it is in the room. If I can get it quiet, you know, that's even better. And if it can get it kind of dark or dim, that's even better. But comfort is key for me. So, uh, for instance, I would, I would rarely meditate on the floor unless I didn't have anywhere to sit. And so I recommend people, especially new people, uh, start off at least on something that's more comfortable than the floor, such as a chair or the couch. And, um, and you know, as far as meditating in nature and, and those kinds of things, that can be nice as well, provided that you have some comfortable back support. Otherwise, you may end up just kind of fighting your body the, the entire time, which will definitely diminish the overall effects of it. Mm-hmm. Like a few weeks ago, me and my girlfriend went for a hike and we decided to do a 10 minute meditation practice on a beautiful high point mm-hmm. overlooking a river and forest. Mm-hmm. After we both finished the practice, we both opened our eyes and the first thing we said was, wow, everything looks so colourful. And In that moment, it made, made us really appreciate how beautiful the world is that we live in. Yes. So this leads me to the question, what's your best experience of meditation? My best experience of meditation was learning how to meditate. The first time I was able to get into that that deeper state, um, it's kind of like how drug users say their best high was the first high, and the rest mm-hmm. the rest of the highs after that they're just trying to get to that same place that they were able to get to the first time. <laughs> so you know, just the fact that you're discovering something that has been there the entire time, except you just never really bothered to go through the trouble to learn how to tap into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're a, you're, you're happy that you finally did it and B, you look forward to doing it again and C, uh, you just kind of feel, you feel smart because you, you bothered to go through it. And so, uh, yeah, I would say that, that would be my best experience. The rest of them just kind of blend together. It's just kind of like a one big blob of, of light and, and, and bliss. And like you said, even even the bad meditations, thought-filled meditations, they all they have a part in it as well because they help you to appreciate when it gets good again. Yeah. Uh, how much of your meditation is planned in advance versus being more improv? Do you set a block of the day aside to meditate, or do you just meditate maybe when it feels right? Um, I meditate. <laughs> there was a there was a quote from this uh, this uh, author named Somerset Mom. Do you know Somerset Mom? Uh, no, no one ever heard of that. Okay, so Somerset Mom, some a journalist once asked him. He said, uh, "If you could, do you write on a schedule, or do you write whenever you get inspired?" And his answer was, "I write whenever I get inspired, and luckily that happens every morning at nine o'clock." <laughs> and so, you know, there's the thinking that. When you sit down and you commit to doing something on a regular basis, that actually it engenders inspiration, right? Inspiration comes from consistency uh, because that's one of the things that you are helping to strengthen is your ability to be inspired and amuse and those things that we all have inside of us already. It's just about cultivating a pathway so that we can access it on a more regular basis. And I learned this a lot through my writing as well that the more consistent I am with my writing, the more inspired I am from writing, just like mm-hmm. Somerset Mom said. So meditation is kind of in that same category. You know, if you meditate every day uh, on schedule, you'll find that you have to, A, plan it less because you actually look forward to doing it, and B, you get your best ideas from your meditation or as a result of you meditating. I tell people all the time, if you're not meditating, you are literally leaving money on the table because mm-hmm. – the best ideas for what you should do in X, Y, and Z situation 
are going to come to you as naturally as any other idea because you sat down and, and allow your mind to de-excite. Mm-hmm. It's definitely more valuable than any money. Absolutely. I think something that I experienced and had to came to realize was with my central dogma. My heart was telling me health, but my ego was saying it's just all about having a great body. Mm-hmm. And the sense of really thinking, having to really think about a dogma changed me thinking. Mm-hmm. So is meditation your central dogma at which your goals and methods are organized? Or is there a greater purpose served by your central dogma, like contribution, maybe happiness or freedom, for example? You know, meditation, I, I'm a very big proponent of meditation, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I, so I have to talk about it a lot um, because I write about it frequently and, and, um, and I teach it on a regular basis. But I always encourage people to treat meditation like a toothbrush, mm-hmm. right? You don't go around telling people every day, hey, guess what? I brushed my teeth this morning. It was wonderful. And uh, you should start brushing your teeth too, right? You just do it. You just do it and you get on with the rest of your day. And everybody who comes into contact with you will know instantly that you spent some time brushing your teeth that morning because your breath is going to not be repulsive. And so meditation is like that. You know, It's like if you're not meditating, there's a good chance your energy can get really funky you know, a few hours after you get out of the bed and it can stay funky for the remainder of the day until you're able to go to sleep again that night. So sleeping is a way of cleansing your energy. Meditation is a resting experience, which also has a cleansing effect on your energy. If you meditate, people won't realize, oh, that person's a meditator. They'll just know, oh, that person's energy is so upbeat and vibrant. And I just want to be around them all the time. And I just want to do what they do. And, you know, they start tweeting the things that you say and write. And they don't even know why. They just know that they feel inspired by you. You don't have to say a word. And so um, if you can help it, I would say don't even mention the fact that you meditate and see it as a dogma, for instance, or just see it as a tool. This is some tool that you use so that you can access your full potential so that your body's intelligence can do everything that it's been designed to do and so that it frees you up to be able to enjoy your life in the best way possible. And and only you you know what that looks like and what that feels like. But it's not to say you can't have a dogma. Everybody has beliefs and you know, worldview that they live by. But that also changes and expands with, uh, with you, whatever your inner experiences are. If your inner experience is pretty dark, then you're gonna, your worldview and your dogma is going to reflect the, the survival mode, which is the dog-eat-dog world. And we have to do what we have to do to survive. And there's not enough to go around and scarcity and this and that. And that's fine. That's where you are. But as you're inner state starts to expand and become lighter you're going to find that that inner light is going to going to um it's going to cause those dark shadows that you see in the world to diminish and you'll start to instantly begin to see more of the goodness in people more in the goodness of situation the more optimistic approach to life and so everybody has whether you admit it or not everybody has their own worldview and their own truth and that truth to them is indisputable based on their experiences. And so, you know, people going around saying that, you know, they meditate and, you know, um, and, and they're trying to convince you of their truth. It's, 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 a, it's an exercise in futility because that person who, has, who lives in darkness is not going to be able to see what you see and experience life in the same way that you experience. And so the best thing you can do is just continue to do your practice, allow your light to shine in whatever corner of the world you happen to uh, occupy. And that shining light will become a beacon to people who are seeking something else, a different kind of experience. That was an amazing example to look at your central dogma. Amazing. Uh, If you could go back to your childhood with the knowledge you have now, Mm -hmm. where would your meditation ability be today? Would you do anything different? Um... I wouldn't do anything different. You know, I teach a lot of kids how to meditate. And the thing is, although kids get it a lot faster than adults get it. Mm -hmm. Mm. um, But the thing is, is that because we, we lose a lot of our childlike ways as we get older and we get really heavily invested into this notion that happiness is going to come in the future it's almost beautiful when you are able to rediscover 
the old ways, the childlike ways as an adult. And, yeah. uh, and so there's value, I think, to the ebb and flow of happiness. Um, there's, there's a lot of value to the, the, the challenges and the hardships that we face as adults and, and as you know, people becoming adults that will, that will add to the payoff when you finally make your way back around to uh, seeking out the happiness where it truly resides. And everybody gets back around to it. It may not happen in this lifetime or next lifetime, but eventually you'll make your way back mm-hmm. to, uh, to going within to find the happiness. Light, what are the three biggest lessons of wisdom you've learned over your 15 years of your practice? Oh, man, <laughs> it's kind of hard <laughs> to narrow them down to just three. But uh, um, uh, one of the one of the big ones that and I'm still I still honestly to be perfectly transparent, I struggle with a lot of these still. But mm-hmm. uh, one of them is um, to let people discover these uh, these truths on their own. You know, there's mm-hmm. a tendency to want to help people, and you see that they, if they just did one or two little things differently or had a different way of understanding things, that it would decrease their suffering dramatically. And unless people are ready for that, they're going to reject your well-intentioned uh, interventions into their life. And you have mm-hmm. to really let people uh, have the process of discovery for themselves. So that's one of the main lessons that I'm still struggling with on a day-to-day basis because, you know, like anybody, I, I, when I learn something that I find to be helpful, I want to share it with other people. And, uh, and one of the tenets of ancient, the ancient Vedic or uh, Indian knowledge is you don't do that. That's not something that a wise person would do. Uh, wow. Another, another lesson that I've learned in the last 15 years is that if it happens overnight, it's not going to be sustainable whatever it is you know if you can heal yourself overnight it's not going to be sustainable because whatever you did to put yourself in that situation in the first place is likely going to continue happening because there's been no lifestyle changes uh, that's taken a place over a long stretch of time and uh, and my experience in meditation has taught me that there is no overnight effect you know maybe you start sleeping a little bit better after a few days but uh, for the most part these changes these positive changes that everybody reports meditation they happen incrementally which you know they come they go they come back they go again and it's not until you've been practicing it for a good four or five years until the benefits really start to stabilize and even then you're still questioning whether or not um, it can get better than what it is and so it's this never-ending process of refinement that you experience as a daily meditator. And But when you look back and compare yourself to who you were before you started meditating, it's completely night and day. It's, it's a completely different ballgame. The third thing is that you, uh, you learn the value of, of uh, prioritizing and how that actually is one of our, if not the most valuable asset that we have, you know, people people often uh, put money and time in that category. You know, what's the most valuable thing we have in our Western uh, point of view? We see it as we we don't admit it, but we it's money. We we value money over everything else. We know it's not politically correct correct to say that, um, because there's something inside of us that also says that actually money is not the most valuable thing. But that's how we live our lives. Right. And for those of us who are politically correct enough and smart enough to, to, to catch ourselves before we admit that it's money, we say it's time because why time is money. Right. And uh, but if you can have all the time in the world, you can have all the money in the world. But if you don't know how to prioritize. That's so true. Then you're going to end up being miserable. Right. But if you know what's important, if you know that, OK, I have a good billion dollars, but hey, I still need to meditate. I still need to be productive. I still need to be philanthropic in my endeavors. I still need to respect people and, you know, help people and that kind of thing. Then you're going to end up being a happy gajillionaire versus the miserable gajillionaire who's living life from a place of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Light, a study revealed that gene expression changes with meditation. Mm -hmm. 
Our genes are quite dynamic in their expression and the results suggested that the calmness of our mind can actually have a potential influence on their expression. Mm -hmm. What's your view on meditation in relation to the genes? Um, I think that's, that, that those are legitimate findings. And, um, you know, this, this little simple meditation practice is so powerfully on all levels, not just genetically, but also, you know, again, mentally and psychologically and emotionally that, um, it's, it's something that just needs to be, needs to be practiced. And I try not to, um, you know, there's scientists right now working to uh, uncover all of the different biochemical effects of meditation on the peptides and the hormones and, the, you know, every single aspect of the body. But what I'm finding on the front lines out here is that people just, they just need basic t technique, basic training. If you start getting into all of those kinds of details, it, it tends to be a little bit too much. And, um, and for people who are truly interested in those things, you know, there are, there are definitely avenues for that and, and advanced, uh, training programs and things like that. But most people just need, uh, they just need to know the basics and, and, and it's self-evident. Once you start doing it, you feel better, right? Mm -hmm. If I told you that there was this amazing genetic effect on your, on your mind and body from meditating and you have the experiences that I had when I first started dabbling in it, you're going to think, well, I'm full of shit because you've been doing it and you're not feeling anything, right? And it's not until you learn how to do it properly that you start feeling something. And then you don't need any study telling you meditation works because it becomes your own direct experience that meditation works. And then you can read... Comes part of you, doesn't it? Yeah, you can read a string of studies that says meditation is, is a placebo effect, doesn't do anything, da-da-da-da, but it... it, it negates your direct experience. So direct experience is everything when it comes to practices like meditation. And that's what I, I try to help people do is have that direct experience. So then that way you don't have to rely on a study to convince you to continue meditating or to start meditating. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on expanding consci consciousness through the meditation? Does the inner world open itself through meditation and the deep connection with the body it develops? Um, Expanding consciousness happens whether you believe in it or not. And, um, and it's not something that needs to become a goal or, uh, you know, you don't need to set any intentions for any of that to happen. It's a, it's a by, expanding of consciousness is a byproduct of de-exciting the mind, resting the body. It's as simple as that. So, uh, what, what it really comes down to is, is consistency. You, the more consistent you are, the more your consciousness is going to expand and the better experiences you're going to have outside of meditation. And that's really, that's the only way you can gauge expansion of consciousness anyway is based on what happens outside of meditation. You know, are you more adaptable? Are you sleeping better? Are you getting sick less often? Are you feeling a natural desire to surround yourself with, with healthier people or, to consume healthier foods. And if those things are happening, then your consciousness is expanding. And that's happening as a direct result of your commitment. If you're not committed, if you're only meditating once a week or once every month or something like that, it doesn't matter how, how uh, in, intimately you understand the concept of consciousness or expansion, it's not going to happen, right? So it's a practice-oriented practice. So I would say just practice and everything that's good about you is going to rise to the surface and everything that's not good about you is going to fall away. Like, what do you think about exploring the inner world through ayahuasca? And have you ever tried ayahuasca or any other psychedelics? I've never tried ayahuasca before. Um, I've heard a lot of reports. And, you know, it's, I have, it's hard to um, have any sort of informed opinion about a, a, a substance that you've never actually tried. So everything that I'm going to say about this is coming from a place of ignorance and secondhand mm -hmm. information. Right. Mm -hmm. But from what I've heard, many of the benefits, I have never heard a benefit of ayahuasca from someone that I do not already get from meditation. Right. So right. I have an iPhone on the table here sitting right next to me. And I know that there are Samsung galaxy phones that exist 
and the experience, the reported experience is that they can do everything that an iPhone can do. Mm-hmm. But I just already really appreciate my iPhone experience that I have very little, actually I have zero desire to go and research, you know, the Galaxy phone, right? Even though so apparently it can do the same thing, right? But I'm just completely satisfied with, with everything that my iPhone delivers to me. So I kind of feel the same way about ayahuasca. If it's doing the same thing as meditation, then I don't really need to try it. I don't, yeah. I don't have, I don't hate, you know, I don't have any opinion about people who do it or don't do it. That's just my own personal point of view about it. In my opinion, your heart is your biggest ally in your spiritual development. Mm-hmm. Is happiness a journey or is it a destination? And secondly, what are the strategies for strengthening your happiness? I would say happiness. I would put happiness more into the journey category. You know, so it's just like what the Buddha supposedly said 2,500 years ago, although that quote has not, never been verified. Happiness is not the best. No, the, there's no way to happiness. Happiness is the way, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but again, you can't look at happiness as this, as this tangible feeling that everybody has, the same type of feeling, right? It's going to be different based on the person. And, uh, and although I would say that there is no one definition of happiness, if I had to give a definition of happiness, I would say that happiness is an internal state of fulfillment, right? Supreme fulfillment, which means that you're not wishing something else was happening other than what you're currently experiencing. So how often are people able to drop into that state, you know? If they're lucky, maybe a split second every blue moon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But most of the other time, there's this subtle longing for something in the future to occur. Um, And that includes people who meditate. That includes me. I, I, I find myself sometimes longing for something to happen in the future. And when I catch myself... So the difference in, the thing that meditation helps you with is it helps you catch yourself when you're locked into that future-oriented happiness. Uh And you can bring it, you can reel it back in and just kind of remind yourself that, okay, well, where I am right now evidently is where I need to be. Why? Because this is where I am right now. And when you do the inventory and you look back at your life, you see that there was a purpose and a reason for every single thing and every person you encountered and every experience you had. And this is also highlighted in, in the biographies that we all now know and love. You look at people's lives, historical figures' lives, and you see, oh, wow, you know, if Steve Jobs hadn't taken that calligraphy class, he may not have come up with different type fonts in when he developed the, the, the MacBook, whatever. And, you know, if he hadn't done... Uh, if he hadn't had to walk three miles to school, he wouldn't have had so much time to ponder. And, you know, so all these different things that are perceived as being hardships are actually, you could also reverse them and look at them as, as uh, some sort of stepping stone to a deeper understanding of, of, of the world. And, um, and so in that sense, having a, a sense of fulfillment in, in within that present moment will give you the benefit of being able to take more from it than, than thinking that happiness is, comes at the end of the road where this, this road that I'm on is just uh, it's stopping me from experiencing my ultimate state of whatever it is that you think you, you're supposed to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. Well, that is incredible, right? Uh, to bring this to an end... I think a really cool and powerful way to end this podcast would be with a quick meditation. Yes. If you're okay with that. Yeah. That's okay with you. Sure. So let's just, uh, let's everybody sit comfortably. And um, that means you want to uh, sit somewhere where you you can support your back. You can have your legs and arms doing whatever you want them to do. And then, of course, we're going to close our eyes. And we're just going to sit here for a moment uh, and and start to settle into our simplest form of awareness okay whatever that is that means that means you're not anticipating anything to happen you're not expecting anything special to happen you're just noticing whatever is happening and you're embracing that and that could mean you have a busy mind it could mean that you feel a bit itchy it could mean that you feel 
kind of sleepy. Whatever you're feeling is fine. And then with the eyes closed, I want you to just start to move your awareness from your toes up to your head, but go really slowly. And if you notice any parts of your body that are tense, that are unnecessarily tense, and you can relax it, go ahead and relax it. Right? Again, start from your feet. Move slowly up your legs, like that, up your torso, up through the top of your head. And just relax your body. And we'll take about a minute to do that. Now, I want you to just notice your breathing without controlling it. Just notice it. Notice as you're breathing in, in, as you're inhaling and as you're exhaling. Keep your body relaxed. And also, you're going to allow your mind to drift away from noticing your breathing. And you're going to be very okay with that. No need to control the mind whatsoever. No need to try to find a quiet place within. Just let this be the process. Right? This is meditation. Meditation is a mixture of you noticing your breathing and you experiencing the most random and sometimes dark thoughts and ideas and songs and sensations and feelings and so all of that is okay if you have to cough you cough if you have to sneeze don't go into convulsions trying to hold the sneeze in if you have to scratch the itch you do that if you have to shift in your chair go ahead and shift and keep that sense of organic freedom in your body and allow the mind to be free to do whatever it's doing. And whenever you remember that you're meditating, you're just going to quietly return to noticing your breathing without controlling the breathing. Now I'm going to stop talking for a couple of minutes and we're just going to sit here and practice that. Noticing the breathing, allowing the mind to drift and wander.
right, so we're going to now stop noticing the breathing. Again, bringing the awareness back into the body. Wiggle the fingers and toes. Place your hands, your palms over your eyes. Keep the eyes closed. And then you're going to slowly open the eyes into your palms. And then begin to slide your hands down. Just taking in the environment around you again. And that's it. Short and sweet, five-minute meditation. Anybody can do it every single day. Do that first thing in the morning. And as much as you want to throughout the day, whenever you need a little mental or physical reset, sit down and give yourself the benefit of just settling into your simplest form of awareness, also known as meditation. Wow, like that was so powerful. Thank you, like you. Thank you guys so much. Meditation practice. Yeah, absolutely. It can really set the energy for the rest of the day. That's amazing. Thank you. So on that note, Light, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? Uh, so I am I am found uh, through my website, lightwatkins.com, and that's light spelled L-I-G-H-T, Watkins, W-A-T-K-I-N-S.com. And, uh, and I'm, I'm traveling around uh, mostly America teaching meditation workshops in New York, Chicago, and L.A. I uh, write and post a lot uh, on Mind Body Green uh, health and wellness blog. And I'm working on the second installment to the inner gym, which is the next six exercises. It's actually a four volume series. Um, and so this is installment number two of four to help people become happier inside. Well, I thank you again for being on this podcast. Thank you for being an incredible guest. Absolutely. And we'd just like to say a thank you again. Thank you guys so much. And uh, best wishes on your podcast. And I look forward to, to uh, sharing it with other people. Thank you. Okay. You too. Have a good day, life. Thank you. Okay, man. Take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on iTunes as it really helps the show. And don't forget to head over to the show notes at beastified.com. Hey everyone, and check out our weekly challenge set by the guests themselves. And also don't forget to check out the bonus questions we ask the guests after the show. In the meantime, stay healthy.